It's a Unix show. It's a Unix show. It's a Unix show. This is 365 Honest Questions about the Bible. I'm your long-suffering host, Dante Stack. This is episode 14. Parents, put away your children. This is the episode all about Unix and castration. Here we go. The last couple of episodes, we've talked a lot about the idea, the phrase, going down the rabbit hole, which is clearly a reference to Alice in Wonderland. We've mentioned how there can be benefits to going down the rabbit hole, and there can be a lot of evil and bad news when you find yourself falling down that endless pit. Today, we are definitely going down that pit. I'm taking you with me, and that will become very evident in this first story. But I was serious in the introduction. Parents, the topic at hand is a little more grotesque than usual. So if you tend to have your kids listen to the show, this might not be the episode to have them listen to. Just go ahead, skip this week. See you next week. Goodbye. Have a nice week. Tell me how it goes. Here we go. I would like to intro by talking about four friends from history. Four friends that we can spend some time with. Go back to your closet, find that time machine device, and come with me back to 19th century America. I want to introduce you to my friend. I don't know if he's my friend. (laughs) I shouldn't say that. I want to introduce you to a one Mr. Thomas Corbett. Now, Thomas Corbett seemed to be uh, an outstanding citizen in New England in the mid-19th century. He got a beautiful wife. He had a steady job working as a hatter. Which, you know, everyone's wearing those giant top hats. Lincoln's wearing like a top hat that's like a foot tall on top of his six foot six frame so there's good money there there's got it's got to be a booming business at that time period and if he can live long enough man just wait till the great depression everyone's sporting those fedoras great time to be a hatter now at any rate it would appear that thomas corbett was dealt some good cards landing this job having a beautiful wife and being on the northern side of america so at least the civil war you're about to fight you come out the winner But then he's dealt the bad card that sadly, tragically, happens far too often in every time period except the modern time period. His wife dies in labor as well as the child. So he doesn't take this very well and Thomas Corbett becomes a depressed alcoholic for a time. Until one day he hears a very invigorating sermon from a local Methodist preacher. And just like that, Thomas Corbett has decided he's going to be a devout, a zealous Christian. And from that day forth, carries his Bible with him everywhere, preaches to every Everyone, at every single opportunity he has, he there's a lot of reports of him annoying people because he would just stop his work in the middle of the day to pray for people, pray over people, pray with people. He was your classic Bible-thumping Christian. But he also shows some real signs of uh, lunacy, perhaps. But he seems to be good-natured enough and people-loving enough that, you know, he doesn't get a hard time from the locals about his sometimes very eccentric behavior. One day, while walking home, two prostitutes come up to him and solicit him with, you know, a knight in their bedroom. And he says no, but he goes home and he broods over it, and he broods over it, and he broods over it, and he doesn't know what to do with himself. And and he flips open his Bible, he turns to Matthew chapter 19, reads through it, and then goes and cuts off his genitals. And his biography notes that before going and getting any sort of medical treatment, he went to a prayer dinner, which was however many hours long, before, you know, getting this thing looked at. So a few years go by, 
He is now officially, I guess you would call a eunuch. He joins the army. He actually gets in a lot of trouble in the army because every time his commander uses the Lord's name in vain, he's insubordinate and talks back to his commander. He's actually court-martialed and supposed to be shot, but no one really wants to shoot the guy for being a zealous Christian when, you know, culturally everyone's supposed to be a Christian at this time period. So the Yanks don't feel so great about actually shooting him, so they just demerit him, whatever. And then Abraham Lincoln gets shot. And weirdo Thomas Corbett, who is now at this point, changed his first name to Boston. To history, he's more famously known as Boston Corbett. He sent out with a group of Union soldiers to go hunt down the men who shot Abraham Lincoln. And on the night when they've got John Wilkes Booth and his compatriots locked up in a cabin, if you remember the story, they throw a torch in the cabin, set the cabin on fire to weed out these guys so they can arrest them. And their orders were strictly to take all these treasonous men alive, to capture them alive. Well, old Boston Corbett shot John Wilkes Booth's brains out. When his commanding officer found out later, he asked him, Boston, why'd you do this? Boston's reply was, Providence directed me. In other words, God directed me. This is God's plan. This is God's fate. This is God's destiny for us, that I shoot John Wilkes Booth tonight. After that, he didn't have to make a living being a hatter anymore. He could go around telling the story of how he was Lincoln's Avenger. He's the original Avenger. And I mention his story first because, aside from him being a eunuch, and a historical eunuch at that, and one that derives his eunuchness, his castration, from an interpretation of the text we're focusing on today, he is also a mad hatter. And if you're unfamiliar with it, Lewis Carroll didn't just create the character of the Mad Hatter out of thin air. Hatters had a tendency to go mad because they worked with mercury. And if you don't know about mercury, it's bad stuff. Makes you go bonkers. I read a report that, I guess somewhat recently, they unearthed Ivan the Terrible's bones and whatnot. You know, Ivan the Terrible was terrible and he, like, tortured everybody he ever got his hands on back in Russia in, like, the 16th century. And they found in his bones, like, a crazy amount of mercury. Like, phenomenally past what you would expect to find, I guess. So... Tends to make you go crazy, hallucinate. Sometimes it makes you become a dude that happens to like to torture everyone. Sometimes it makes you potentially shoot the killer of Abraham Lincoln and potentially castrate yourself. So, that's Boston Corbett. I'm sure you're glad to have met him. Now, get back into your time machine. We're going to go back further. Somewhere around the 3rd century, we want to meet Origen, famous... Christian writer, wrote a ton of influential texts that further Christian fathers base their theology on, and just one of the early leaders in the religion. Origen grew up in the Roman Empire time period wherein Christianity was being persecuted, and his father actually was murdered for the cause, and he managed to escape somehow. And he lived here and there and got passed along. And really, he's famous for being an ascetic, meaning, you know, he would live on the bare minimum that was possible. But Eusebius, an early biographer and his Christian historian, writes that Origen one day read Matthew 19 and, believing he needed to literally interpret it, castrated himself. Lived out the rest of his life, obviously, therefore, as a eunuch. So the first two stories we have, first two historical characters, are self-castrators, self-unicizers. But historically, for most of history, eunuchs are not these people group that, you know, are just a chosen race of people that, for whatever reason, feel like they're better off without their genitalia. By no means. I think most of us men would conclude that that is not a decision, not a choice that most of us would make in our right mind. 
Yes, perhaps if you gave me enough mercury, I would suddenly see them as enemies in my body. But it doesn't come naturally to me. But historically, that didn't matter because I would be unicized against my will if I was of a certain people or in the wrong place at the wrong time, or I even wanted to aspire towards a certain life of wealth and luxury. Take Chai Lun, for instance. Chai Lun, I'm sorry, I'm not a Chinese speaker, so I could be completely butchering his name. But Chai Lun lived in the 1st and 2nd century, and he is known to history as the dude that more or less invented or popularized paper. So the way the Han Dynasty worked, as many, many other cultures worked, is in your court of courts, where you keep all your beautiful princesses and your queens and all that stuff... You wanted to keep them safe, but you didn't want them around your best warriors either because you didn't want, you know, just imagine like the the Spartans, the cast of the movie 300 out there all in front of these young princesses. You would worry about the libido of those very strong men that could take you down at any moment. What you want to protect those women is someone that you are not afraid of, that you don't feel vulnerable to, right? If I'm king and say I'm not Arnold Schwarzenegger, so I'm not the strongest man in the land, I want my women to be protected, but I don't want to have to worry about the people that are protecting my women. I don't want to worry that they're going to seduce my women, right? All my concubines, all my wives, I want them to be mine and mine alone. I'm a jealous king. So what do I do? I set up a court of eunuchs. I get a bunch of young boys. I castrate them by taking off their genitalia. Specifically in China, even worse. China is known for actually cutting off the penis as well. In doing a little research of this, I found some pictures, and it is, it is, a, it is a horrible, horrible thing. But I guess the flip side of having to endure this really unendurable hell for these young kids is then they actually have a seat of power. They're really close to the forefront of the kingdom. They're not peasants. They don't have to worry where their next meal is going to come from. And Chai Lun specifically was in this situation where apparently the Han Dynasty was super bureaucratic, so they constantly had to write things down, but they were writing on either bamboo stocks or silk. And obviously silk is super expensive, so you just, you don't want all your stupid bureaucratic nonsense to be written on thousand dollar pieces of silk, you know? So Chai Lun brought to the king, hey, I think if we take tree bark and mix that with some cloth, Bada bing, bada boom, we can produce a paper mill and we can actually make paper that's really good, right? And so that's what happened. Real quickly, I wasn't, I didn't delve super deep into this story, but apparently also there was a kind of like a warrior quasi king, Zheng He, or Zheng He, who was a eunuch, but he was a, a eunuch that like came up and became super powerful and took a roving band of warriors and conquered a whole bunch of places. So. There's an example of a eunuch who, because of his position and his place in the kingdom, has the opportunity actually to excel and has the opportunity to have influence, not just in his own time, but historically. Where would we be without paper? But the last eunuch story I want to tell today is surely the worst. I'm cringing even as I'm about to enter into speaking about this. If you haven't heard, if you haven't gotten the memo, Emperor Nero, whether you're a Christian or an atheist... You gotta admit, this dude was crazy. So in the year 65 AD, his pregnant wife, he just, he gets mad at, I don't know why, but Nero kicks her in the belly until both she and the child die. Great guy. Apparently, or supposedly, according to some historians, Nero felt some sense of remorse because of this. And in his own weird, twisted, logical way, he felt like he needed to replace his dead wife, Sabina, with a look-alike You know, it's your classic clone story. My wife is dead, so I need to get a clone of her. Who does he choose? He chooses a young, probably prepubescent boy named Sporus. 
and he has Sporus castrated, and then quickly thereafter weds Sporus. And after that point, we're told that Nero tells all of his guards and everyone in his kingdom to refer to Sporus as Her Majesty and the Empress and, you know, all these very feminine words. Nero, in his weird, perverted mind, felt like if he castrated this young boy, then he was, for all intents and purposes, a girl. And make no mistake, not just in Rome, not just in this case, but often eunuchs were seen for sexual purposes. Yeah, uh, gross. Unfortunately, and, you know, as is the case with history, we don't have any reports of actually what Sporos thought of all this process, what his relationship was, if he actually liked Nero, or if he was in hell the whole time. It's also interesting to note that Nero took Sporos as his bride. He then also took a man as his groom, to which he would play, you know, the feminine role. So Nero was the wife to this guy and the husband to Sporos. And the astute listener at this point will remember we've talked about the Greek myth the rape of Persephone. That's when this young maiden Persephone, young goddess Persephone, uh, was stolen down by Hades to be his bride. Well, I don't know as a form of irony or what, but it's famously said that either on Nero's birthday or the anniversary of their wedding, Sporos gives a ring to Nero of the rape of Persephone. I guess we're too far gone from that moment in history to know whether that was a truly ironic thing that Sporos did. Like, Hey, look, man, you're Hades. You're the god of hell, and you've stolen me, and you've raped me. And look, here's a ring memorializing this horrible thing that you ruined my life. I hate you. I don't know. Or maybe it was just like, here, dude, here's a ring that I made. It's a Greek myth that's kind of similar to our situation. Hee hee hee. I don't know. We just, we just don't know what Sporos was thinking. Anyway, sometime thereafter, Nero offs himself, he commits suicide, and quickly after that we get the year of four emperors, where we just have this revolving door of new emperors in Rome. But interestingly, Sporus tries to stay around and have relationships with the new emperors, until supposedly one of the emperors casts Sporus as the lead character in a play of The Rape of Persephone, for all of Rome to see. And the shame of this, playing Persephone, this female character, apparently was too much for Sporos, and he then kills himself. So we don't know the true feelings involved in Sporos' life, but clearly it's a tragedy through and through. Historians suspect that he wasn't even 18 by the time he commits suicide. Alright Dante, you've taken a lot of time telling me about these kind of gross stories. What's the point? My point is, eunuchs, castrated people, have a whole history and are kind of their own people group and play an important role in history in almost every culture and every time period, except our current one. So I didn't want to jump into this text talking about eunuchs without reminding you and reminding myself that, okay, wow, there's a lot to go into this topic, actually. There's thousands of lives who were dedicated to this lifestyle, against the will or because of their will. So, all that being said, clearly the Bible is written in a time period where eunuchs were a popular item, popular thing. So surely the Bible has something to say about them, yes? Why, yes, sir, good thinking. The book of Deuteronomy speaks very bluntly about this. This is Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organs is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Bada bing, bada boom. Not showing a lot of love for the eunuchs. And in a darker passage in the letter to the Galatians by Paul in the New Testament, Paul's referring to the people who continually insist that even though the new covenant is here and even though Jesus saves us from all the consequences of the law, that certain people are insisting that everybody who wants a part of the kingdom of God, who wants to be a Christian, still has to circumcise themselves. 
To which Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Or another translation, I wish those who unsettle you would castrate themselves. I think this is just Paul being darkly humorous. Like, well, they're saying they need to circumcise, take a little bit of foreskin. Might as well not stop there. Just take the whole darn penis off, eh? So there are those texts. But then there's Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, Jesus has just finished giving a long talk about marriage and about divorce. I'll pick it up here in verse 11. But he said to them, Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And that's our sticking point today. What on earth is Jesus talking about? He's clearly stating that there are three types of eunuchs. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs because of the kingdom of heaven. Which sounds to me like a fancy way of saying they've made themselves eunuchs because of God or for God. Now there's rightly a question here of does the word eunuch really mean what we think it means? Does it mean literal castration? Far and away, obviously, almost every scholar, every theologian, every historian, every Greek scholar thinks that the correct interpretation of this passage is not a literal one. That Jesus is saying there are those who have chosen not to get married, have chosen not to have sexual intimacy for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. You can look at Christ himself. If He would be considered in that group. No, he never married, he never had sex. If that's our definition of eunuch, then this all fits together quite nicely. Now again, I want to be careful here as we talk about this. I'm not advocating that you go out and you cut off your genitals. I'm not advocating that. I'm simply raising the question here because it doesn't seem that simple to me. Jesus lists three different ways to be a eunuch, and the first two seem very literal to me. That was part of the reason why I wanted to tell those stories of eunuchs before getting into this passage, because those stories illustrate that there are all three of those categories of eunuchs, or at least two of those three categories of eunuchs. It's, of course, debatable about this third category. I'm not suggesting that the Mad Hatter, Boston Corbett, cut off his genitalia for the sake of the kingdom. And I believe that the body is a temple, the scriptures say that, and there's nothing in scripture that talks about an allowance for self-mutilation, right? Well... We'll talk about that next week on part two, but let's stay focused here for a moment longer. There's an easy way to read this passage, and there's a hard way to read this passage. The easy way to read this passage is to simply admit or to simply resign oneself to thinking that this is talking about virgins. Here's the trick, though, for me, is that last sentence. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. To me, my instinct, my gut tells me from that that what Jesus is talking about in this passage is not a message that everyone's going to comprehend. Another way of saying that is, it's a sermon maybe for one person, or it's a sermon maybe for a few people. You know, the way we Christians read the Bible, we read it with open hands saying, Holy Spirit, illuminate this text for me. Holy Spirit, show me what I need to take away from this today. So you ask yourself, why is this here? I don't know, maybe it's for those people. Maybe it's for the eunuchs of the world. The literal eunuchs, I don't know. So the question, and this is an honest question, it might sound dumb to you, but I'm just going to ask it. In certain cases, does God condone castration? I don't know the answer. That's what this show is all about. I don't know. But I do have a takeaway from this passage. Since I'm married, I feel like this last line of the verse is kind of like the, don't worry too much about this, Dante, it's not for you. I'm not a eunuch in any sense of the term at this rate. Maybe a few years ago before I got married, we could have a dialogue about, should Dante be a eunuch or not? But I'm married. 
So the answer is no. But besides that, you know, we're always looking, hopefully in this show, you've picked up on this rhythm now. We're always looking to learn about God's character in every passage. We always want to know God better. So read this passage and ask yourself, how can I know God better from this passage? And I think the answer lies in the book of Acts. This is a very famous passage, so I'm just going to read it straight through. This is Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 38. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. What we see in Jesus Christ is this character who cares about the downtrodden. He cares about the prostitute, he cares about the orphan, he cares about the widow, and he cares about the eunuch. In this place in Acts, we have the Holy Spirit leading a disciple to witness and baptize a eunuch. And I think that's the type of thing Jesus was talking about when he talks in Matthew 19. Jesus is saying, eunuch, you have a place in my kingdom. You have a place with me. Whether you did this to yourself, whether it was done to you, or whether... Through whatever means, your castration came for the blessing of the kingdom of heaven. You're in, man. I love you, and I'm with you. So next week, in part two of our castration and amputation series, we're going to look at another controversial passage wherein it looks like Jesus is telling us to remove a part of our body. See you next week. This is Dante Stack signing out. Peace be the journey. Hey, you know how sustainability is all of a sudden like the most popular buzzword out there? Like every one of my friends, I guess, is getting a master's in environmental sustainability all of a sudden? Well, here on the podcast, we also care about sustainability. And I want to ask you today, if you value this program at all, help our sustainability by doing at least one of three things, okay? Here they are. One, write a review on iTunes. Every review on iTunes helps bump our podcast up on the iTunes store. So the more reviews we get, the more eyeballs see the podcast, the more popular we'll be. So please help us out in that way by writing a review. Even if you don't like the show all that much, but you still listen to it, give us a three-star review. That's fine. 
Option two, multiply yourself. You know you don't want to just listen to me talk about Levitical law all day and have no one in IRL to talk to about it, you know, to say, yo, that Dante's whack, man. You want to be able to tell that real person that Dante's whack. So if you have any friends that listen to podcasts, share this with them. Go out and multiply yourself. If we get tons of listeners, for sure we'll be able to keep this enterprise going for a long haul. And then finally, option three. If you haven't noticed... We have a donations page. You can donate to this podcast. I'm not here to make anyone feel guilty or anything like that. If you don't want to give, that's fine. But if you get value out of the program and you want to help me continue to do this, throw me a buck or two or five or a thousand or a million. That'd be great. You can find that at DanteStack.com slash donate or just DanteStack.com and find the donate tab quite easily. All right. See you next week.